said. Amen. Zechariah, as we heard a few weeks ago, and just as, as well in the reading, uh, was a contemporary of Haggai the prophet. He also labored, as I said to you, as a post-exilic prophet with the prophet Malachi. After the return of 70 years in Babylon, uh, there were very few that were encouraged when they looked at Jerusalem. The walls, the temple, and the state of things, and the people that were so discouraged. As you know, in the book of Haggai, they forsook the building of the temple. And there was opposition for 16 years. They returned to their own houses and they built their sealed houses. That means a beautiful decor, their paneled rooms and all of their uh, outhouses and all of their gardens. And they gave themselves uh, to their own interests. And that's why Haggai uh, was raised up of God in order to turn the people back to the Lord again. And whenever we compare the ministry of Haggai chapter 1 verse 1 with Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1, we discover that there was only two months between both men. Uh, They served exactly at the same time. Two months earlier, Haggai had begun his ministry. And remember, he had only two months left after that. And then God raised up Zechariah. It seems that Zechariah's ministry was totally different from that of Haggai. You might think, why do you need two prophets? Would not one be sufficient? Well, there was one who was a practical prophet, and that was Haggai. And then there came Zechariah. And he not only stirred them up for the present, but he gave them hope for the future. And he also gave hope for future generations that he knew would return, no doubt under Ezra and under Nehemiah, and for the Jews that would return throughout the history of this world, right up until 1947 or 46, when Jews began to return again to their own land. All of these prophecies would encourage God's people and would encourage the church today uh, to work for the Lord. According to chapter 2 of verse 4 of the book of Zechariah, we discover that Zechariah was the younger of the two. Haggai was the older man, and Zechariah was the younger man. And yet, both could work together. We've often heard it said in the church that you should divide the young, and you should divide the old. And that's what you have in some mainstream denominations today. You have a service in the morning for the, I was going to say the elderly, but for the older ones. It seems the young ones can't get up at that time. They have to have a meeting later on. But they have it about 10 o'clock, sometimes half nine in the morning. And all you have is senior citizens in the meeting. And then come half past 11, you have the church filled with the young people. The young people never work alongside. The young people never worship with the old people. That's not scriptural. I'm glad today, as I look across this congregation, I see children. I see young people. I see those that are in middle age, uh, young people even in the pulpit. And I see, it's not myself of course, I see up in the gallery those young ones. And it's great that we have family worship and we have the young and we have the old working together. And there's no reason why a prayer meeting on a Tuesday night in a Bible study should left, be left to the older ones. It's not what some young people think, that on a Tuesday night, it's for the older ones. Young people don't go to the prayer meeting. Where did we get that? Where did we ever hear that in a pulpit preached? Where did that counsel come from? Who taught you that? 
Who told you that it's only for the older people? Maybe you say that's all it is. It's not. We want to see our young people at the prayer meeting. You'll never learn to pray, young person, as a believer if you're saved. Unless you get out to the prayer meeting, you'll hear people pray. You'll hear how they pray, how they wrestle with God. You'll see their tears. You'll hear their passion. You'll know how they wrestle with God. You'll see their arguments, how they present scripture. You'll be taught how to pray. And that's why we're laborers together with God. And with God, there's no such thing as an older person and a younger person. We are the children of God. And Haggai and Zechariah, the older and the young, were brought together in a successful ministry. And both labored together. And God blessed their labor. So therefore, it's wrong to divide the church into the old and into the young. We labor together with God. And the aged are instructed there in the New Testament in the writings of Paul, uh, are instructed to teach the younger. How can that ever happen if you divide the church? You see, you're breaking Scripture and the commandment. The aged are to teach the younger. And how is that done? By their example, by their faithfulness in attending the house of God, uh, by their godly example, where young people will look up to them and see them, men and women, and they'll look at their lives and they'll say, well, there's a man, there's a woman, and they never miss the meetings. There's an example of a believer that I could be taught from and I could be instructed by. And so you can see that in this passage, we we have in chapter 2 and verse 4, that Zechariah is actually called Go after that young man. He's called a young man. And we know that Haggai was the older man. And yet they worked together successfully. I broke the cardinal law in preaching. And that is by applying. In my introduction, we were taught for four years. What a waste on me anyway. uh, Not to apply the word in your introduction. But finish your introduction and then apply it under your headings. But I felt that was very important as we survey. And that's what we're doing. We're surveying the book of Zechariah. We're picking out salient points that will be, I believe, beneficial to you. Now, Haggai labored for four months. Zechariah for about 40 years approximately. Uh, Looking at some of his writings, he, he does mention certain things in the book that leads us to believe that for at least 40 years, because some of those things didn't happen until about 40 years after Haggai. So we can gauge from the book Uh, that he labored for at least 40, maybe over 40 years, Zechariah. But Haggai had only four months, August to December. That's all. That's all he had. And yet both men, laboring for that little time, did everything they could for God. I don't know how long you have left to labor. I don't know how long and I will have to labor. I don't know if I will finish my ministry here in Cumber. I don't know will I ever get to retirement. No one knows those things. We can plan, and it's wise to do that. But we also say, if the Lord is willing, according to the book of James, if God wills, we'll do this and do that and go here and go there. But we don't know. But whatever time we have, that's the time to use for the Lord. And work while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. Both men working together under God. One had four months, that's all he had. And another had over 40 years. I don't know whether we'll have a long or a short period to serve the Lord. But what we do need to do is use the time and use it wisely. However, both men had a similar purpose in their ministry. They were ministering to the people of God and they were called to encourage those people and to comfort them and to stir them up and motivate them to not be 
interested in their own things and their own selves, but to get themselves involved in rebuilding the temple and establishing again the walls of separation around the city of Jerusalem. Those walls were never intended to keep the people in under the days of Nehemiah. They were never really intended to keep the enemy out. They were symbolic. They were symbolic that Jerusalem and the people of God were separated from the nations. The wall was symbolic in many ways. Did they not say in Nehemiah's day that if a fox go up, it would destroy, a fox would destroy that wall. It's a pathetic building job. You don't know how to build a wall. Look at that. You call that a defense. It was symbolic of the separating of that nation unto God. And the walls were symbolic that the outside world was there and they were not going to mix nor marry with the nations around them and they would be a people that separated unto God and God would have a peculiar people and he would, re- he would have his dwelling place in the midst of those people and he would live among them and dwell among them and bless them and then they would become a blessing to the nations. That was the plan and will of God. How often it was thwarted by the backsliding of Israel and we find that under the ministry of Haggai and under the ministry of Zechariah. Now, interestingly, if you were asked a Bible trivia question, and if you were asked in a little Bible quiz, name me the true prophets of hope. The true prophets of hope. You would say, well, maybe Isaiah. He certainly was a prophet of hope. I couldn't say Jeremiah. He was like a prophet of doom, although we couldn't categorize him like that. He is my favorite book in the entire Bible, and he's my favorite prophet of all. And I know you have David, and you have Moses, and you have many others, but Jeremiah is the man for me. I love his life story. I love his work and all that he suffered. But you know, if you wanted to answer to that, it's Haggai and Zechariah. They are the prophets of hope. That's exactly what those men were called, prophets that gave hope to the people. They weren't prophets of doom. We know that Joel preached judgment on the day of the Lord. We know that even Micah, although it was tempered with mercy, their messages were always tempered with mercy. But generally, Joel, uh, and even the book of Micah, uh, and we know that even in the book of Hosea that we looked at, and then we go to Obadiah, and we go to Amos, and we go to those minor prophets, and we discover that their message is one of judgment, one of doom. But when we come to Haggai, and we come to Zechariah, you do not find that that is the thrust, that is the burden, that is the, the core of their message. Rather, it's encouragement and it's hope and it's, in, it's motivation to service in the light of Christ's first coming. And for generations after that, in the light of his second coming. So they were called prophets of hope because they were, to use, they were used of God to challenge the people and to encourage them to wholehearted service. His message at Zacharias, just like Haggai's, was one of hope in the midst of apathy and discouragement. We could literally say these books were written for this very day. Now, when the people had returned to Jerusalem, it was a total mess. Remember, 70 years had passed. There were only a few people left. They were the weak and the infirmed. Nebuchadnezzar never took the aged. He left them there. He never took the weak and the vulnerable. He left them there in the land. He left them. And they were to just till the ground and live off the land. They never rebuilt the walls. They never cleared the rubble away. 
The temple had been destroyed. The walls, the buildings, everything in Jerusalem had been ransacked. Everything had been taken. Any timber that was worth it was taken with them, put on huge carts, taken away as timber that was used for building in Babylon. And all the gold and silver and the precious stones there in the temple, it was completely destroyed. And as a result of that, when they returned again, you had not only 70 years exile, but you had 70 years of the building up of rubbish and rubble, and they burnt things, and they just had the place in a total mess, and the the temple was in ruins, the walls were broken down, the gates were burned with fire. Was it not said of, of Nehemiah that when he returned secretly at night, and he walked around the walls, and he saw the state of Jerusalem, and remember, remember this, Nehemiah came some 93 years after Zerubbabel, and yet the, st- the place was still a mess. And you can see that you've got a beleaguered people and a discouraged people. How would we ever fix this? How would we ever get this sorted? And as a result of that, the Bible tells me that when Nehemiah saw the state of the place, here's what had happened to him. It says that he sat down and he wept before the Lord and he fasted and he prayed and someone has given a summary of the book of Nehemiah and it was like this he, he saw the work of God and it state that it was in and he took it to heart and he wept he wept that's what it says in chapter 1 of Nehemiah he wept he took it to heart and he wept and then secondly the Bible says he took it to God and he prayed That's the summary of the book of Nehemiah. And then he took it to hand and he worked. And that's where you get C.H. Spurgeon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London. C.H. Spurgeon. He had a magazine and it was called The Sword and the Trial. Straight out of the book of Nehemiah. Whenever they were working and building the walls and they had the sword on their side. Ready for the attack of the enemy. And the horn would have been blasted. And they would have rallied round at any point of those walls when the enemy tried to break in and to kill. And so you had what is known as the believer, the sword and the trial. You're battling against the enemy and yet you're working for Christ at the same time. All out of the post-exilic prophets and the servants of the Lord like Ezra and Nehemiah. All based on that in Christian service and in Christian work. When the people returned, the walls were flat. And the temple was in ruins. And there was nothing but rubble and rubbish. And the people had ceased to work. And all of a sudden these houses had sprung up. Beautiful houses in the midst of the rubble. Beautiful panelled sealed houses. And they were working hard at them. You could hear the carpenter sawing away. You could hear the old rusty nails going in. Fastening with the various vines and so on and so on. And you could see them all working and carrying, even little children carrying stones and and different things and and trees and wood being shaped so they could panel their lovely houses. That's what Haggai met. That's what Zechariah met. And their task of God was to turn them from their own interests to the things of God and to the house of the Lord and to the rebuilding of the temple because Messiah will not come unless this temple is rebuilt. Never mind about the walls. Nehemiah look after that. Never mind about all this rubbish and rubble. Leave it. You look after 
Center your work, life's work, upon the rebuilding of the temple, the house of God, and establish. Now remember, uh, when Zerubbabel did return, uh, they did set up the altar. Worship was practiced even in Jerusalem when they returned from exile. They had to meet with God. The altar had to be erected, but the house of God, the temple, was not built. All of its functions that God intended to meet with the people and they would follow were not in place. And as a result of that, Haggai and Zechariah were commissioned of God to literally stir up the people and to see a revival among God's people that they might work for the Lord. Zechariah encourages them by prophesying. He encourages them by giving them eight visions. He had eight visions. I said to you in the Old Testament, the prophets, when they got a vision, it's not like the charismatic movement today. When they, you would see a prophet, he would come in to a city or a town. You would know him. There's Haggai. There's Zechariah. There's Jeremiah. There's Isaiah. There's Ezekiel. You would know them. Amos. All of them. You would know them. And they were known to the people. And when they came in, they, they literally stood among the people. And they were in a trance-like state. And you knew that they were receiving instruction and revelation from God. And as they were receiving the vision, they were literally speaking out the vision. As they saw it. And the people would have stood and trembled as the word of God was revealed to the prophet and he spoke to the nation and to the people. That's exactly what happened. God spoke through the prophet and the prophet, Zechariah in particular, he had at least eight visions that he brought to the people. Now when you look at those visions, you'll say to me, well, I don't understand them. I want to assure you today that when you look at those visions, they're not hard to understand. You say, well, that must be Thomas Martin's interpretation rather than every other commentator. It's not. I'm telling you, when you look at the vision, when you understand what it is, it's a picture. You'll understand the truth. You already know the truth it's conveying. It's not new teaching or new truth. It's old truths that are brought fresh to us. And that's what we have here. Now, admittedly, I, I admit that there are some parts difficult to understand in the book of Zechariah. And I leave that to the experts, for I'm not that. But I trust in this survey that we will look at, and by the way, as I said to you, we'll only give you the first point today. And we'll come back to this in a few weeks' time after our Children's and Young Adults Day. But I trust as we survey the book, and that's all we're doing. We're not going into in-depth or some uh, exegetical uh, teaching that is word by word and sentence by sentence and phrase by phrase. We're not doing that. But I want to survey the minor prophets I've been doing and give you an understanding what the meaning of the book is and what its aim is for the people of God. I trust you'll be blessed as you seek to serve the Lord, as you work for Christ in this day and generation. It's a dark day. It's a difficult day. I say to you, it's a dangerous day to serve the Lord. But nevertheless, we have got encouragements, motivations, and stirrings of heart in the book of Zechariah that I guarantee you take them to heart. You will be stirred up to serve the Lord. Notice how he inspires hope and motivates God's people to work for the Lord. The first thing is this, and that's all you hear today, the first thing. It's this, he uses the visions of God. Have you said to me, well, you have no other message prepared. You're only bluffing us. I have. You can have a look at it later on. I have three points here. But I, I want just to bring the first. Here's how he motivates, stirs up. He uses the visions of God. Some eight visions are recorded in the book of Zechariah. Eight visions. Eight pictures. That if we did not understand, 
would mean nothing to us and never motivate us. But when we understand what they are, and I'm not going to look at all of the eight of them, I'll only look at three that I feel would be beneficial to us today. And it's, I believe, I commend to you the study of those other uh, five visions in the book of Zechariah. But these visions inspired the people to serve the Lord. The first vision, now listen to it, was a vision of the presence of Christ with his people. Now, is that hard to understand? You lift this book and you read this chapter, which we did, and you'll read about the rider on the red horse, the angel on the red horse. You'll read about other horses as well, red, white, and speckled. Uh, you will read about also mulberry trees in the bottom. It really means in the valley. And when I explain to you how simple it is, and there's nothing complicated about this vision, you cannot go away today and say, I didn't understand the visions of Zechariah. I told you this first vision that we have in this book is the presence of Christ in the midst of his people. That's what was motivating and stirring up the people in Haggai's day and in Zechariah's day was that Christ was with his children. Christ was in the midst of his people. Christ was alongside them in the midst of all that rubble, in the midst of all that decay, ruin, in the midst of all that apathy and discouragement, in the midst of their vulnerability and the opposition to the work and the battles they had to fight and the things they had to do and their own weakness they had this wonderful vision given to Zechariah to teach them that the Lord was with them. Even though the world was against them. Even though they could have been killed at any time. And they lived in fear of their lives leaving Babylon and the safety of that country. And returning to Jerusalem with 50,000 people. That's all. Less than 50,000 actually. Less than 50,000 returned on this occasion. And this, as I said to you, there wasn't just one exodus in the Bible from Egypt. Many exoduses in the Bible. At least five we could recount. Three of them happened during the Babylonish captivity. One happened in Egypt. Another, I believe, not recorded in Scripture as such, although mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, was the return of Israel, the northern kingdom, from Assyria. And even today, there's an exodus from the nations of the earth to Israel. And the Israelites and the Jews are returning to their land in huge numbers, huge numbers, anticipating wrongly the first coming of Messiah. He's already been. With respect to the ancient people of God, you're wrong. The Messiah's come. He's the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. You're waiting on the wrong coming. It's his second. To the Mount of Olives, when the mountain will split. And the nation will be saved in a day. And the nations of this earth will lick the dust at his feet. And every knee shall bow and tongue confess on that day that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he'll set up his everlasting kingdom. That's exactly what it says in the minor prophets. The kingdom is the Lord's. The kingdom is the Lord's. It's from the book of Obadiah when we get to it. The kingdom is the Lord's. Every kingdom will be destroyed. Now it's remarkable because you have here in this vision. Let me read it to you. Look what it says there in chapter 1. Look at verse 7 and 8. And don't be put off and think, well, I can understand this. 
Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Sabbat, in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah the son of Berechiah the son of Iddo the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom in the ravine in the valley. And behind him there were red horses speckled and white. And of course the meaning was asked, what are these? And it was said that these are they that go to and fro in the earth. And they say that all is well. Speaking to the people of God. Can I tell you something? There's not a single commentator that I've read or that I would ever read would disagree with what I'm about to tell you. The rider on that red horse is Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And those other riders on the red speckled and white horses are the angels of God, the host of heaven. The same host that Elisha saw and asked God to open the eyes of his servant when the king of Assyria uh, sought to attack and besiege the city to kill Elisha the prophet. And Elisha saw what Zechariah saw. He saw the captain of his salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the hosts of heaven, the angelic host. If you had eyes to see, child of God, today, if you had eyes to see, if God was to open your eyes now, now I want you to listen to me. Look at me. You listen to me. This is true. If you were to open your eyes spiritually right now and God was to give you spiritual vision, you would see Christ on the red horse right now. That's what you would see. And you would see angels around this building. You would see angels in this house. Did you know that? And ladies, one of the reasons you have a head covering is because of the angels are present. And it's a teaching lesson to the angels that they remain in their created order and not like Lucifer and a third of the created angels that fell with him and are damned and doomed. How significant it is Nevertheless, I want to tell you that Christ is present. And guess what? The mulberry trees, it's not the cedar of Lebanon, the great trees of the earth. It's not the great oak, the great trees of the earth, a little humble mulberry tree, a little bush. That's what the people of God are in the eyes of the world. And where's Christ? Among the cedars of Lebanon? No. Among the great oaks of this world. No. Where is he? He's among the mulberry trees. And where are the mulberry trees growing? They're growing in the ravine. In the bottom. In the lower parts. In the humble place. And there's the people of God in Jerusalem. 50,000 of them. Compared to the great army of Nebuchadnezzar. And the might, although it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar uh, and Pharaoh Necho and so on and the Assyrian uh, confederacy, the Babylonians destroyed that confederacy, you know. But the might of Egypt was still there. The power of Assyria was gone, we know that. The Babylonians were the world empire at the time and they persecuted the people of God and done them to death. And so did Assyria and so did Egypt and many of those other nations around uh, that uh, land of Israel. We know that. Jordan and Syria and so on and so on. All mentioned in scripture. Even Iraq and Iran mentioned in scripture in the book of Genesis. We know exactly where the Garden of Eden was. According to the teaching of Holy Scripture. Somewhere in the region of Iraq. Did you know that? The Garden of Eden. 
I want to tell you something. The man on the red horse is Christ. Those other riders with him are the angels of God. And they're protecting the people of God. Mulberry trees. The little humble tree. Fragrant because Christ is in the midst. And Christ loves that mulberry tree. And where is Christ sitting on the throne ruling among the great kings of the earth? No. Where is he? He's among the despised little mulberry tree. That little mulberry tree nobody would even take notice of. No one even want to take shelter under. No one would ever want really to plant in your garden except for decor or something that looks nice and gives a bit of fragrance. That's all. No room. But amidst all the great cedars of Lebanon, and we're talking figuratively here, the great rulers, Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh Necho and many others as well. And we know that Sennacherib, we know that Rabshakeh, Rabsaris and all those princes and kings of Assyria ruled viciously in those days. And yet Christ was nowhere near them. Where was he? He was there and on the horse. The horse is for battle. And he's on the red horse. And there is power and authority. And he has all the other riders with him. The hosts of heaven. And he's called Jehovah Sabaoth. Fifty times in the book of Zechariah. That title is mentioned. And we'll come to that in the summary. And the sur- survey of this book. That title is used over uh, 50 times in the book of Zechariah. Some 14 times in the book of Haggai. Some 25 times or so in the book of Malachi. Nearly 90 times that title is used. Lord of hosts. And I'm going to tell you why. Uh, a few Lord's Days time obviously why that title is given and the many titles we find of Christ here in the book of Zechariah but I want to tell you something this message of Zechariah was to bring God's people a word that the Lord was in their midst even though they're despised and weak and lowly they're persecuted they have opposition no one really likes them no one would join with them and they were despised of the world I want to tell you they were told you tell them where I am I'm with you I'm in your midst here's the vision Now see it, the rider on the red horse. And see the other horses with me. And the riders on them, the hosts of heaven. The myriads of angels. We don't know how many angels God created. We know that a third of them fell with Lucifer. And that could be in the millions or billions or trillions or zillions or whatever calculation you want to make. So two-thirds of them remained in their created order. And they are ministering spirits. They're sent to minister to the elect, to watch out for the church. Did you know that? The ministry of angels, we don't see them. The reason for that is simple. Because we would worship them, that's why. And they'll never appear. Because we would worship them. And that's what's happening today. Angel worship. Go to some of the holiday resorts here in this province. And you'll find these shops opening up. And they're selling pictures of angels. And you can get a so-called angel. That's your guardian angel. With a picture. A picture. I often think. It's a picture of the demon behind it. That's what it is. There's no recorded picture of an angel in Holy Scripture. Even God himself hasn't painted on the canvas of Scripture a portrait of an angel. Yet men do it and worship them. But they're here and they're protecting you, child of God. There's more with you than more against you. And I know that I've heard it from Christians saying, sure, the world's against us. Can't even go out into the open air. Why bother? So you knock a door and they chase you down the road. So that's what's going to put you off from serving the Lord. A bit of flesh and bone. Carnal nature. A grasshopper in the sight of God. A speck of dust that God created into a human being. That's what you're afraid of. 
That's what you fear. Someone saying, I don't want that track. Don't be coming to this door again. We don't want you people here in this part of Cumber. Uh, Noel Shields and uh, Colin Maxwell were doing an open air in Hillsborough. Well, it's called Royal Hillsborough by now. And no doubt the Reverend Ian Kenny will not speak to you now. Royal Hillsborough he lives in. He was in Hillsborough and he stood alongside them. And a woman came up with a finger right in his face and says, We don't want your kind here. Get away from here. You're not wanted here. The Reverend Kenny says, I live here. <laughs> she just walked away. Didn't know what to say. But that's the kind of people we'll meet. Are we going to be put off when we have the Lord with us? Now we say in the open air we have so many. What a crowd. Great. It's wonderful. And it is wonderful in these days to have people out with us in the open air. But I want to tell you something. It was only three of us and the Lord's there. We have a majority. And the Lord is there. That's what the vision says. It's a vision of the presence of Christ. Where is Christ today? He's here in this building. He's with his people. He's among the mulberry trees. He's among the mulberry trees. Or the myrtle trees rather. He's in the midst here. I want to tell you something. Not only is he in the midst, but did you know that he's praying for this church? He's praying for this work. He's praying for these services. He's praying for our open air. Did, he, did you know that he's praying for your family? That he's praying for your children? Did you know that he's praying for you personally today? I want you to see that. I know we find it in the book of Hebrews and the book of Romans. I know we do have his high priestly ministry right throughout the New Testament. But I want to show you his high priestly ministry even in the Old Testament. Now I want you to see this. If you look with me in verse 12. Now look what it says. Then the angel of the Lord. Now I can literally do this and I'm not trying to be smart. Then Christ answered and said. Now think of it. This is Christ who is God and he speaks to God. This is Christ who is Jehovah, and he speaks to Jehovah. You see, he's God. And the angel of the Lord, Christ answered and said, O Lord of hosts, O Jehovah Sabaoth, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? And the Lord answered the prayers of Christ. And the Lord spoke to the people with good words and comfortable words. And so he prays like this, Father, for 70 years they've been in the hands of the enemy. They have now returned to Jerusalem. Will you not return with mercy to, to our people and to my people? Father, hear my cry for my children, for my people. Rescue them, preserve them, keep them, bless them now. Defeat their enemies, prosper the labor of their hand. Encourage them, give them help, Lord. Present yourself in their midst and bless them today. That's exactly the prayer of Christ here in Zechariah 1.12. So what do we have here? A vision of the presence of Christ and the prayers of Christ. I want you to think, and we'll just use these two as a conclusion. I want you to think in chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, and we haven't time to read all these, but you have a vision of the power of Christ. And I do want you to see this in verses 20 and 21. And the vision is easy to understand. Uh, look what it says there in, in, in verse uh, 19. It goes on to say, or verse 18, Then lifted I my, up my eyes, and I behold four horns. Four horns. That's easy to see. Four horns. A symbol of power in the Bible. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered, These are the horns which have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four carpenters, four craftsmen, four blacksmiths. And 
and then said, I, what come these to do? What are these blacksmiths going to do with these horns? And look what it says. These are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man did lift up his head. But these are come to fray them, to destroy them, to break their power. They're come to cast out the horns of the Gentiles. We lifted up their horn, their power and authority over the land of Judah to scatter it. So here's the image. Here's the picture. It's a picture of the power of Christ. What he's saying is this, you've got four horns. And you know what those four horns were? They were representative of the empires. Now you could even go back to Egypt and Assyria, but I don't think it means them because they're gone. At this stage, they're gone. Egypt and Assyria are gone. They're not ruling empires anymore. They're finished. Babylon destroyed the confederacy of the remnant of the Assyrians and of Egypt under Pharaoh Nico. And in that great battle of Carchemish, if I'm getting it right, that's when the Assyrian power was broken and the power of Egypt was broken, although I would argue it was broken uh, when the Red Sea, when God uh, destroyed Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt. They always had a, co a confederacy to fight after that. But I want to tell you, it represents, I honestly believe, the four great empires prior to the first coming of Christ, and that was Babylon. Medo-Persia, Greece, and the Roman Empire that was existent in the days of Christ. Those four empires, represented as horns of power, were dominant in the earth to the first coming of Messiah. And as a result of that, they opposed and they destroyed and they persecuted the people of God. And what do we find? We find the Lord raises up deliverance. Four carpenters come. They're blacksmiths. They've got the, the, the hammer. And these metal horns, these tin horns, they took them and they frayed them. They battered them and they beat them and they destroyed them. And ultimately what it meant was this, that God would deal with those empires. Babylon's gone. And the Medo-Persian empire's gone. Where is it? And Greece, where are you? Rome. Where's Rome today? We have only the ruins of what's left of the old Roman Empire. Where's the kingdom of God and Christ? Sitting here in Cumber. Sitting here in Northern Ireland. Sitting in China. Sitting in Indonesia. Countries of persecution. Saudi Arabia. Some of the greatest works of God are in persecuted lands. You see, the kingdom is the Lord's. And these people, don't you worry. Don't fear the empires. You're part of my work, my kingdom. You belong to me and my kingdom will last forever. And he literally says, my house shall be built. In chapter 116, my house shall be built. Same words Christ used in the New Testament. I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then finally... You have the vision of the protection of Christ. And I'll just use it now just to finish off. In other words, you have a man, chapter 2, and he's running. And builders know this. He has a line. And whenever people are building a wall, builders, I've seen them building houses. And they have this line. There's probably a name for it. I'm just showing my ignorance. There are builders here. And they have this line and it keeps it plumb. And it keeps it straight. And they build and then they put the line up and they build. And they keep it straight and they can keep it plumb. Maybe I've got it totally wrong here. But the man runs with a measuring line. And he's starting to run around Jerusalem. And then the, the Lord says, what's this angel doing? 
And Zechariah standing there in the vision, obviously. He says he's measuring Jerusalem. Why? To rebuild the walls. And the, the Lord says, no, no, no. No need to build the walls of Jerusalem. They'll not protect you. I, that's what he says in chapter 2. He says in verse 5, For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about her, and the glory in the midst of her. The presence of Christ in the first vision. The power of Christ in the second vision. The protection of Christ in the third vision. Go through all eight, and you'll discover Christ with his people. Blessing, protecting, helping, providing. It's a wonderful thought, isn't it? We look at some of the titles of Christ. And we look at some of the words of Christ that motivated the people to serve. And I trust today you'll get the word in your heart. The Lord's with you. God is able to destroy and defeat every enemy and help you. And the Lord will protect and provide for you. Father, do bless the word today. And we just pray as it's been preached in human weakness and we feel in a measure rushed. Nevertheless, bless it. And that which is of thyself, let it live on as the voice of man grows cold and silent and falls to the ground and dies. Let thy word live on.